I would ask congregation that you would keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 6 this morning as we look at this wonderful passage that our uh, God has set before us to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say to the church this morning. Beloved congregation of our great God and Savior, in a way we can understand what the Apostle Paul is doing here and what, what is happening here in these verses of Ephesians 6. As parents, we do it ourselves. As a matter of fact, from the time our children can crawl, from the time that they can understand, we begin, don't we, to warn them about the dangers uh, that, that uh, exist all around them. We begin to, to tell them uh, about the precautions that they need to take to keep themselves safe. We tell them, you know, don't go near the stove. Button up your coat if you're going outside, if it's chilly. Uh, be careful uh, if you, when you're riding your bike or don't jump too close to the edge of the trampoline because we see dangers and we begin to tell them, you know, if, if, as they get older especially, you know, when you use potholders, if you're taking the casserole out of the oven and these kinds of things. And you know, this as for parents, it never ends. No matter how old our children get, we still feel obligated within limits, of course, as they get older to warn them of the dangers that they face. And we do this not because we like to hear ourselves speak as parents, not because uh, we want to nag them or spoil their fun, although it may, from their perspective it may seem that way. We do it because we love them, because we cherish them, because we want what's best for them. Well, how much more so does the, uh, the Almighty God cherish and love us, we whom He has saved for His own, uh, we who He calls his, the apple of His eye, and we who He wants to save from any kind of danger. And so he warns us in this letter this morning, in Ephesians chapter 6, of the spiritual danger. In, the, in, in fact, uh, dangers that far exceed crossing the street without looking both ways or taking a casserole out of the stove, burning our hands, whatever it may be. We, we're, we're warned this morning about the spiritual dangers that we will face in this life. Our God, you see, cares about our, our well-being and especially our spiritual well-being. And so he warns us here this morning through the pen of the Apostle Paul about the dangers that we will face in these last days. And that's our theme this morning as we look at Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. Our Savior God warns us of the ongoing reality of spiritual danger in these last days. Our Savior God warns us of the ongoing reality of spiritual danger in these last days. In the first place, we'll see um, uh, our anchor in spiritual danger. In the second place, the urgency of spiritual danger. In other words, how seriously do we have to take this? What are the, the enemies that we face? And in the third, third place, we'll see the weapons against spiritual danger. But as our Savior God warns us of the ongoing reality of spiritual danger, we want to see that he teaches us in the first place of the anchor to which we must hold. In other words, what will keep us strong? What will hold us steady uh, as we face the ongoing attacks of the enemy in these last days? And in Ephesians 6, uh, verses 10 to 11, he says, Paul writes, and this is Christ, of course, speaking to us. We understand that. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And uh, just to understand the context here as well, and why Paul suddenly jumps into this, uh, we have to understand that in the previous chapters, beginning already in chapter 4, he begins to give us various warnings and commands, exhortations, as to how we're to conduct ourselves as God's people, uh, as those who have now been joined to the people of God. He reminds us of things like walking in humility and gentleness and patience. He tells us to speak the truth and to put off the sins of the old nature, the old man, he calls it. And that includes things like anger. These are the things that should be going out of our lives, that we should be at least working towards seeing, of, seeing it less and less in our lives. Things like anger and lying 
and stealing and corrupt talk and any kind of bitterness and rage and lust, any kind of fornication and uncleanness. And Paul urges us, on the other hand, now that we are the covenant people of God, now that we have been joined to the people of God, he urges us to be kind, to be tender-hearted, to be forgiving. These are the things that should uh, characterize us now as the people of God. In chapter 5, Again, continuing on the positives, he commands wives, submit to your husbands, be subject to your husbands. In other words, respect them, honor them. And on the other hand, what the men often neglect or, or forget quite easily, he commands the husbands, love your wives, cherish them, be tender with them, be understanding with them. He commands children to obey their parents, parents to uh, train their children, our fathers especially, train and admonish your children in love. He commands slaves to be, uh, to be respectful and obedient to their masters and, and masters to be kind to their slaves. And now we come to verse 10 and Paul says, finally. In other words, this is the conclusion to his exhortations. This is the last piece of instruction he will give in his letter as he begins now to, to wrap it up, to sum it up. And what is this piece of instruction? He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And we have to see that of all the commands he's given previously, this is the most important command. Because if you think about it, how can we possibly obey the former commands? How can we uh, continue to exist and to stand firm in these last days How will we continue to walk in obedience, never giving in, never falling away? It is only as we look to the strongest anchor that that is possible, that, that exists, and that is the Lord. And you know, this is not a strange teaching here. Paul doesn't come up with with a radical teaching. This is you can find this all through the Bible, all through the Old Testament, in fact. I mean, we sang from, um, from Psalm 46. What is, what, is, what is Psalm 46? What is our confession? God is our refuge and our strength. In, in 1 Samuel, just to give an, uh, an example, 1 Samuel 30, a really nice story there, a good example for all, all of us. When David and his men, they, they, they're off, they went off to war and they returned to find that the Amalekites, they had a surprise waiting for them. The Amalekites had come in. While they were gone, all the warriors, and they had burned all their possessions, and they had actually carted off all of David and his men's uh, wives and their children, and, all the, and, and they destroy all their possessions. And the inspired writer records there for us that David was very distressed at that time because the men were actually talking about stoning him. They were blaming him for this. It is because we're following you that we're in this trouble now. Our wives and our children are gone. All our possessions are burnt. But we read, and the inspired writer records for us, but David found strength in the Lord his God. And so this is not a radical teaching that Paul is bringing out here. Joshua 1, we read the same thing. Joshua is told, be strong and have good courage. Why is he told this? Because Joshua uh, had it in him that he could look deep inside himself and and, and, and be the strong leader that he needed to be? No, he's told because the Lord is with him. That's how we're strong. And that's the crux of the matter, isn't it? Congregation, we're reminded again this morning in this passage, as as Paul begins to wrap up this letter, the most important thing we always need to understand, where our strength lies, in the Lord our God and in His mighty power. And we have to ask ourselves, as as we hear this this morning, could this, we have to ask all ourselves, we have to ask ourselves individually, every one of us, ask ourselves this personal question, could this be my problem? Could it be that the reason that I'm not making the kind of spiritual progress that I should be is because I depend more on myself 
than on my God? We have to ask ourselves this question this morning. Could it be that the reason that I'm so entangled in this particular sin that I'm dealing with in my life, this sin perhaps that I've been praying about and trying to deal with for years, whether it be an anger problem or a lust problem or whatever it may be, could it be the the, the reason that I'm so entangled in this? The reason I, I feel so weak that I'm stuck in this rut is because I try all the time to be strong in myself and in my own power. Is it... Because I look to myself and not to my God. Now, Father comes to us this morning and he reminds us, my children, be strong in my power, in my strength, in my might. And, and you know, it's interesting, the words used here in the Greek, it, uh, they, descri- they describe power or strength that is abundantly effective. In other words, whatever obstacle we're facing, the strength of the Lord is infinitely greater it's kind of like when the apostle paul says um, it reminds us of uh, ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 when the apostle paul says now to him this is a kind of a doxology he says now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is in that is at work in us uh, god's power we're reminded there far surpasses whatever challenges, whatever struggles, whatever troubles that we face in these last days. And so we're to look to His strength. We're to depend upon His might. We're to hold fast to Him who is our only anchor of hope in this sin-cursed world. And of course, Paul could write this, humanly speaking, of course, because he, he understood this firsthand. I mean, Paul, if you understand his history, if you read the struggles that he went through, he endured suffering that... Let's face it, most of us will never see. We will never really experience the kind of struggles and sufferings and abuse that the Apostle Paul faced. And yet, what does Paul write in Philippians? A a verse that we should all have memorized or at least highlighted in our Bibles. Philippians 4.13. What does Paul write? I can do all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What was he doing here? Did he come up with this new idea, this new teaching? No, he was picking up on what Jesus himself said in John 15. When he said, I am the vine. You are the branches. In other words, be strong in me. Draw your strength from me. Don't look to yourself. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul doesn't tell us here. As you face the troubles and the trials of this world, the spiritual attacks that you're going to face, you better dig deep. And look deep in, in yourself and you better hold on to the end because you have it in you. That's not what he says here at all. Absolutely not. He says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand. And of course, the armor uh, imagery here is, is figurative. Paul means to say that God provides in the way of spiritual preservation and protection. It is God who provides these things. It is he who helps us in our daily battle with temptation and sin. And so how are we to face the trials and temptations and struggles of life in these last days? We're to look to the Lord. We're to look to His strength. He's our spiritual anchor in the dangers that we face every day of our lives until Christ comes again. But as our Savior God warns us of the ongoing reality of spiritual danger in these last days, we also learn of the urgency of spiritual danger. As I said, uh, how serious is our predicament. What, what kinds of enemies are we facing? Well, remember in uh, verse 11, Paul already mentions the devil. 
And you say that in, in many circles today and people laugh at you. They don't believe that. He's pulled uh, the biggest stunt that he could possibly pull, especially in our day, by getting people to believe that that's all myth. Or that the devil is some funny little uh, creature with, in a red suit with a little pitchfork that lives in hell, who, who lives only there to torture people. And he gets people to believe this. Or even that the devil is some kind of a cute little character that you can toy with. What do we hear in the, in the word of God? Paul warns us to be in our God against the schemes, the wiles of the devil. See, the devil, that's what he is. He's a schemer. He's wily. He's very crafty. He's very subtle. And he's very good at what he does. He knows where we're weakest. And he knows how to trick us. And to trip us up if we're not very careful. If we're not on our guard. If we're not finding our strength in the Lord. And looking for his protection every day, every moment. I mean, already, you don't have to think too much about this. Already back in Genesis 3, we find the devil mixing lies with just enough truth. To do what? Bring about our downfall. We're still paying for what he did back in the Garden of Eden. The devil, you see, is able to quote scripture out of context to try to discourage us or to turn us aside from our task. I mean, he tried it with Christ himself. That's how bold he is. And perhaps how uh, confident he is in his abilities. He tried it with Christ himself in the wilderness. We could read about that in Matthew 4, boys and girls. Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. In other words, he can masquerade as a saint, convincing you that he has your best interest at heart when all he lives for and all he longs for is your downfall. Don't ever think that there's any redeeming qualities in the devil. The devil, he exists to, to torment us and to trouble us and to try to bring us down. He lives because, uh, knowing that his end is near. And the goal of his existence is to take down as many of Adam's fallen race with him as he possibly can. Don't ever think he's a friend. Don't ever think he has any redeeming qualities. Don't ever think he is going to change. In Second Thessalonians 2, we're warned that he is capable of displaying power signs and lying wonders to deceive us. And if we have any doubt still left in our minds, all we have to do is read Revelation 12, where we're told that he is enraged with the church and he has gone off to make war uh, war with those who keep the commandments of God. The devil is our enemy. And we need to remember this because we're in a war. We're in a war in which we are now sent out as soldiers of the cross to declare the lordship of Christ in this world. Christ, of course, we know has dominion. He holds all authority and over heaven and earth. His kingdom is everlasting and it will not fail. But it is our job now to speak and to live out our calling. To speak out and to live out the good news of Christ's salvation in this world. Satan's commitment, his goal is to attack us, to discourage us, to dissuade us, to plant seeds of doubt and fear in our hearts and minds, to plant falsehood and lies in our hearts. And so the warfare that we face congregation is spiritual and it's it's dangerous even more dangerous than physical attacks that's why paul gives us this urgent warning in verse 12 he says for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms literally in the greek he says we wrestle not 
We don't, we, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And it's interesting that he uses this term because if you think of wrestling, and I'm, I'm not talking about fake wrestling, not the WWF stuff. I'm talking about real wrestling. Wrestling is characterized by what? Not merely by brute strength, but by trickery, by cunning, by strategy. And the goal is to take down and to pin your opponent by what? Outthinking him. Using different techniques, scheming, faking. That's what we're engaged in. That's what's going on in these last days. It's a continual wrestling match between us and the forces of evil. The devil and his evil angels are dedicated to outwitting us. To bringing us down, to leading us down the wrong path. All the while thinking that we're going down the right one. Paul describes them here as rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces that exist in the universe. And the picture here, we don't, need, we don't have time to get into every single one of these terms, but the picture we get here is of innumerable, uncountable enemies possessing great power. Earth is their playground. This is where they frolic. And this is where they incite men to sin, tempting, luring, making the wrong seem right and the right seem wrong. And what makes this battle urgently dangerous is the fact that we can't see them. They're not flesh and blood like us. We're not engaged in a battle in which we can look the enemy in the eye. We can't see the whites of his eyes. We deal with an enemy that lurks in the shadows. They whisper. They're unseen. They're without form and their spirit. What they do, and they're very good at it, is that they goad us to sin. They cause, they cause us to see ourselves as the wronged parties all the time. They incite us to demand our rights. They do delude us to see others plotting against us. The forces of evil, you see, are masters at making us paranoid about other people. Making us uh, think things like, you know, those people are standing over there. What are they saying about me? I'm sure they're talking about me. Why, why, why don't people like me? Is someone laughing in a corner? I'm sure they're laughing about me. That's what they do. That's what they're good at. And, 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 uh, and, and causing us to build up a response to what we think is happening around us. Someone does something to, to us or, or passes us by in a parking lot. We're not thinking first and foremost, oh, this, uh, you know, Mary must have a headache this morning, so she's not feeling well. We think, oh, she's probably mad at me because I did so and so. Well, I'll show her what and I'll give her what for. That's what they do. And they're very good at it. Christ warns us about whom we wrestle against in these last days. Unseen forces. They're wicked and they're hateful. And he warns us so that we can keep things in perspective. And we can see things right. And we can think straight. We can think straight, for instance, and we can keep things in perspective. When, the, when a good friend injures us very deeply with his words, he cuts us to the heart. And what is the temptation? To retaliate, to get them back. When these things happen, Christ warns us here so that we can keep things in perspective. He warns us so that when these little unexplainable things happen in life, you know the kind I'm talking about. You're out of the goodness of your heart. You decide to drive over to your neighbor's house to help him or her out because you know they're going through something and you want to help them. And what happens? You get a flat on the side of the busy highway in the pouring rain. I'm not saying that every time these things happen, that's because the evil angels are doing something. But, you know, it helps us to keep things in perspective. 
That we work against unseen forces that seek to, to dissuade us from doing good and seek to bring us spiritual harm. When our children and our grandchildren are rebellious against the Christian faith and they don't want to hear what we have to say. When you're, when you're speaking to your teen, when they, they're going through that rebellious stage in their lives. And, and they're saying to you, and sometimes they get uh, so with their backs up against the wall that they will actually say to you, I don't want to hear what, uh, about it. I don't care about this stuff. I feel like a hypocrite when I go to church. We can keep things in perspective. But when, when we feel like doing them physical bodily harm, we remember we're, working against, we're not working against flesh and blood here. When catechism teachers, when you look at your catechism classes and you see bored eyes, after you've worked so hard to prepare your lesson and you want them to be eager to hear and to learn. And what you see looking back at you are, well, I have to be here. And you, they're bored. Keep things in perspective. When we're tempted, every one of us, to compromise on what we know is right. Because we were not brought up that way. We were not taught that way. And yet, you know, perhaps we get emotionally involved with somebody from outside of the church or whatever. Or for some reason, we, we're tempted to compromise on our Christian beliefs. Let's keep things in perspective. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces unseen in the universe who seek to bring about our downfall. It's nothing less than the powers of darkness that causes a co-worker to ignore you when you speak of your Lord to him. Or to even snicker at you when you sit praying at work before lunch. And when former members of the church, they walk away from the faith and they actually request they write a letter to Consistory and they request, please lapse my membership because I really don't want nothing to do with the church anymore and I don't want you guys calling me and bothering me anymore. Please understand that the evil angels have done their work well. When the person we've been working with and teaching suddenly loses interest, understand that there are invisible forces working against, against us and against them. These evil forces who have come and whispered and planted seeds of doubt and have caused and have convinced this person, why take things so seriously? You know, you're young, enjoy life, live it up, sow your wild oats. There's lots of time to think about spiritual things later on. They've done their work well. Let us, let us congregation take this very seriously because if we are to continue in the obedience that Christ calls us to in the previous chapters. And the things I mentioned. Putting to death the old nature. Speaking the truth. Walking in humility. Loving our wives. Respecting our husbands. Obeying our parents. Raising our children right. Obeying our bosses. Treating our, our, our employees well. If we're to continue in obedience. The obedience that Christ calls us to. Then we must recognize that there are spiritual forces that are working against us. And having recognized this. We must Admit our weakness and our inadequacy. And we must begin to look to the Lord for help. To use what he has provided. As our Savior God warns us then of the ongoing reality of spiritual danger in these last days. We see in the third place the weapons at, that we have at our disposal. And I just want to read verses 13 to 18 once again. Paul writes, Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Paul tells us here to stand, to stand firm, to stand to the end. And so that when all it's over, when we face the difficulties that we are facing, we will face it down and we will stand firm. And biblically speaking, that's what it means. It means to stand firm, to remain firm in our belief and commitment, not to be shaken and turned away from our faith, not to become so overwhelmed that we end up saying that uh, this whole Christianity thing is nonsense. And that uh, we really have no use for it because it does no good to me. Paul uses an interesting term here in the Greek. It's kind of an army term, actually. And uh, in army terms, it means, when he, when he says stand or stand firm, it means to, to hold your ground. Imagine uh, the enemy troops coming at you with everything they have. And the, your, your commanding officer will say, stand firm, hold your ground. In other words, don't allow the enemy, whatever happens, don't allow the enemy to push you back. Uh, it means to resist the forces as they come uh, against you, not retreating, not backing up. That's the kind of language that Paul uses here in the Greek. And the command that comes here to us, then, is prepare for conflict. Fight valiantly. Defend your position. Even advance into enemy territory. Well, how is that possible? Only as we take up the full armor of God. This is the command that God gives us. And the grammar here in the Greek suggests immediate action. Take up the weapons now. Don't wait until you find yourself in the midst of the fray, in the midst of trouble. As I say to my catechism class, my, my, uh, my teens, I say, don't wait until you find yourself one day in a ditch upside down in your car thinking I can't feel my legs to look for God. Do it now. Take up the weapons of spiritual warfare now. Be dressed and ready now. But let's take a moment to just talk about the armor that is described here. And uh, it's interesting that Paul uses an imagery that would have been quite normal to the, and, and recognizable to the people of that time. Uh, Roman soldiers, of course, the Romans ruled the known world at that time, and so uh, they, knew what a, they knew what a Roman soldier looked like. And when a Roman soldier was getting ready for battle, there were, uh, there were a number of things that they would do in preparation to, to step out onto the battlefield or to step out to, to, to march out to the enemy. Um, Paul mentions here the belt of truth. Uh, what, what, what a Roman soldier would do is, uh, what he's talking about here is, uh, is actually not a belt so much as a loincloth. If you look at pictures of uh, drawings of, um, uh, in, in history books or little children's books of Roman soldiers, you'll see that they're, they don't wear pants. Uh, this, these, we're talking about the days here before pants were invented. The men in those days, they wore a kind of a, a, what is called a tunic, which is kind of a, a dress that came down to the knees. And normally that was fine. But if they were going into battle... That wouldn't do because you obviously can't run in this, in this tunic. Your, your legs can't move. And so what they would do is they would take this loincloth and they would bind it around their waist and through their legs and they would, uh, they would gird themselves up and they would tighten um, uh, the folds of their tunic and then they would be able to run without tripping over uh, their, the, the folds of their tunics. The next thing they would do is then they would put on their breastplate which was meant to protect their chest against uh, arrows or against the swords of their enemies or stones from their slings, whatever it may be on their feet and this is actually interesting the Romans were so, uh, so wonderful at, at battle and war because of 
how far they were ahead they were able to think. So, of course, in those days before the roads as we have here and the army vehicles, the terrain was very rough. Sometimes there were hills that had to be uh, um, ascended or descended. Uh, the terrain was uh, stony, whatever it may be. The Romans came up with the idea of having hobnail sandals which gave uh, them the ability to move very swiftly over uh, terrain. And they would actually be able to travel from A to B very, very quickly, faster than any other army, and swoop down upon their enemies very quickly. And so Paul says, it reminds us that the next thing they would do is put on these hobnail sandals that would give them steadiness or traction in any terrain. Next thing they would do is they would pick up their shield, which of course would protect them from arrows that was fired at them, or even um, the, the, the swords of their enemies. And here's something interesting, because uh, the enemy quite often would, um, would dip their arrows in tar, or actually they would tie a piece of cloth on it, they would dip it in tar, they would light it a fire, and then they would fire it, so you have this fiery arrow coming against you, the Romans would soak their shields in water overnight. I can't imagine how heavy that would be to carry around. Uh, these guys had to be extremely fit. But they would soak the, uh, be carrying these water-soaked shields so when the fiery arrows came, it hit it, and it would extinguish the flaming arrows. And so the next thing they would do is pick up their shields. The soldier would then put on the helmet on his head to protect his head. And the last thing he would do is grab his sword. And that is to inflict injury upon the enemy, to go on the offense. And so Paul, as I said, is using an imagery here that was common to that day of a Roman soldier that was dressed and ready for battle. But what we have to be careful of is that we don't draw too straight a line between the article of armor and what it calls us to. Remember that this is figurative language. And as a matter of, as a matter of fact, Paul is drawing uh, on Old Testament language here as well. A couple of passages, there are more, but um, in uh, Isaiah chapter 59... Verse 17, listen to what uh, Isaiah prophesies, speaking of God coming to save his people. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Um, and then in uh, Isaiah 11, verse 5, we hear that God puts on, uh, or right, speaking of God, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And so Paul is actually drawing on Old Testament language here. And that's why we say it's figurative. We don't draw too straight a line between the piece of armor and what we're called to do. Uh, like I said, all over the Old Testament you find this kind of language. The context of these passages uh, portrays the, the Lord as the divine warrior coming to save his people. And of course, we know that this, these prophecies have been fulfilled with the coming of Christ. This speaks, of course, first and foremost of Christ, who has come and defeated the powers that held us and released us from the shackles of our sin. But the danger still remains. Satan and his forces still seek to torment us. And so, as spiritual warriors, we're now called to put on this kind of armor, spiritual armor. We're called, first of all, to put on the belt of truth, or to be girded with the truth in the original language. Uh, truth, you see, in the same way the loincloth would uh, uh, keep the, the soldier steady and firm, truth is what enables us to stand firm. We're to put on truth upon us. In other words, sincerity, integrity, trustworthiness. These are the kinds of things that should characterize us as God's people. Falsehood and lies and deceit, these are the things that should be far from us, in fact. We get ready for confrontation, Paul is saying here, by wrapping ourselves in the truth. That is God's truth. In a world of lies, 
facing the father of lies and his lying hosts, we fill our minds with truth. We bring truth and we crave truth. What is the next piece of defense? It's righteousness. What does he mean by that? He means a devout and a holy life. That's the next piece of armor that we must put on. A devout and a holy life. And in this regard, we might recall what Paul says in Romans 6. In Romans 6 verse 13, he says, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. And that's what he's talking about here in Ephesians 6 as well. The emphasis, as a matter of fact, throughout the New Testament is to no longer live as we used to. The sins of the old nature has to be put to death in our lives. Righteous living uh, must flow from us. It must bloom and blossom in our lives. Well, the next piece of armor is the gospel of peace. We have to shod our feet with it. And um, this, in fact, the gospel of peace is what will propel us forward, what will keep us going. Uh, That is the good news of salvation. Whatever obstacles the devil may throw in our path, whether it's steep hills or slippery slopes or thorns or rocky paths, Paul is saying you can continue to advance if your your feet is shotted with the gospel of peace. And that's not saying that discouragement will not come and you won't face disappointment from time to time in life. But these things will not overwhelm us. It will not throw us back, uh, back into retreat, push us back, as long as we continue to reflect on the gospel. And what's the gospel, boys and girls? The good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And in the face of Satan's flaming arrows or fiery darts, we have to take up the shield of faith. And as the water-soaked shields of Roman warriors put out the flaming arrows that were shot at them, so we render impotent whatever the devil and his angels fire at us. We hold up the shield of faith. Faith, of course, according to Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7, is the knowledge and conviction that God's word is true, and also the assurance that all of God's promises mentioned in his word, that these promises are mine as well. And so when Satan accuses... When he comes and he plants seeds of doubt in our mind, when he causes others to dishearten us, when he seeks to take away our joy, it is our faith that we must, as it were, hold up. What is our faith? Our surety, our hope, our undying trust in God and his Christ. That is our shield. Paul also mentions the helmet of salvation. And he uses the same imagery in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8, where he likens a helmet to the hope of salvation. And what he's saying is that in the same way a helmet protects the head from injury in battle, so our hope, that is our sure, confident hope of salvation, that's what must protect us from Satan's blows, if we could put it that way. Our thoughts of our salvation uh, deflect them, no matter how violent his temptations and his taunts may be as him and his angels come at us. And then we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Bible. The, the sword sim- symbolizes that we're also to be on the offense. Uh, what does the writer of Hebrews call the word of God? He says it's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. It's a discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. What are we taught here? That the word of God silences, it humbles, it cuts to the heart. By the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, the word drives men to their knees. 
Liars and hypocrites are exposed for who they are by the word that is the sword of the spirit. And so these are the pieces of armor that Paul tells us to take up and to wear. And just to remind us one more time not to trust in ourselves, because you know our inclination, we might think that we're able to wield these weapons by ourselves. Paul reminds us in verse 18 to pray. We must join in prayer or join prayer to all the graces that was just mentioned. We must continue to plead with God, imploring Him for His blessing upon our use of the spiritual armor that He gives us. We, we might say it this way, above all the spiritual armor that we're wearing, that we put on, we must put on prayer. Kind of like we would put on a, a, an overcoat over everything. Prayer, in other words, is what will, will make the spiritual armor that we wear, that we take up, it, it's what will make that armor effective. Only with God's blessing will they provide the defense and the offense that is needed to survive this war. And congregation, these last days are characterized by spiritual danger. And again, don't, don't misunderstand. It's not that a Christian can lose his or her salvation. We're not saying that at all. We don't believe that. But the enemies of our souls seek to torment us and to tempt and to discourage. They want to dissuade us from speaking to our neighbors about Christ, from evangelism. They want to shake our trust. They want to turn us from obedience. What do we do? We stand strong in the Lord, in His mighty power, dressed in the armor of truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and all of this bathed in prayer. May the Lord bless us with dedication and perseverance and zeal to live for His glory and His praise Till he comes again. Amen. Let's uh, respond by turning in our hymnals to hymn number 41. A mighty fortress is our God. Hymn number 41. uh, And we rise to sing the four stanzas.